Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, uh, dear church family, and a very happy Pentecost to you. Today is the day that we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit that is the people of God. We receive the Spirit of Jesus, who's invested in us to guide us and to lead us into being who he's calling us to be for the, for the world. Um, I, I, have a, I have a word for you today. Um, uh, several weeks ago, you know, every Monday is my day to do uh, some yard work, and I was out mowing the lawn uh, a couple weeks ago, and the Lord, you know, I don't say this uh, lightly, but the Lord was giving me, genuinely giving me things to preach for today, and so I kept kind of running between my front yard and the house to write myself some notes, and I kind of bounced it off a few people to see if it really felt like, yes, this is from the Lord, and this is where we're going, and this was a couple weeks ago, um, and then at the beginning of this week, I began to second-guess myself, and I began to second-guess um, the Holy Spirit, because the word that I have for us today isn't an easy word. It may not feel at the beginning like a Pentecost word when we think about um, the new life that we have in the Spirit and how we so often frame that. Um, because if I'm honest with you, um, which I, I try to be as much as possible, I'm someone who really loves to avoid conflict, to avoid uh, the difficult things, to kind of continue to, to speak in, in positive ways uh, or to frame things in a way that keeps us comfortable because I'm afraid of the consequences of what might happen if I'm to stir the pot. But if I am to be truly authentic uh, to being um, a leader in this community and speak on behalf of God, I have to be able to follow his uh, promptings, and I believe the message he has for us today is an important one. Um, and again, thank God that we don't come to church uh, just to be comforted, uh, but also to be challenged when need be. We don't come to feel good about ourselves. We come to meet God and to be transformed when we encounter him through his word and through his people. So let's pray, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us. Emmanuel, God with us, through the Spirit with us, in us, among us. That you are leading us from death to life, from hopelessness to hope. You are doing a work within us that's continually purging us and purifying us, making us look more like Jesus so that we can hold the work that you've given us to do this side of the resurrection. And so God, be with us. Would you be with each of your dear ones hearing this message today? That we wouldn't hide from your word, but that we would boldly face it, knowing that your spirit gives us confidence um, to, to walk into difficult things as we are working out our salvation. We keep our eyes ever fixed on you and who you are calling us to become. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin with a meditation on a poem by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, someone whom I have learned a tremendous amount from in, in learning how to read the Old Testament and seeing the big picture of what God is actually doing there. Um, and this, this poem became the beginning of this journey of me 
shifting my understanding of what Pentecost is really about and then allowing that new perspective to kind of frame some of the things that we're experiencing, not only within our own community, but within our nation today. And so I'm going to read this poem and I want you, you can close your eyes, you can read it on the screen, but I want you to allow it to wash over you as good poetry does because it touches a deeper part of the human experience than just describing things can. And so I hope that these words uh, from Walter Brueggemann will kind of give us the context for where the Spirit wants to take us today. We hear the story of the wind at Pentecost Holy wind that demantles what was. Holy wind that evokes what is to be. Holy wind that overrides barriers and causes communication. Holy wind that signals your rule even among us. We're dazzled, but then reverting to type. We wonder how to harness the wind, how to manage the wind by our technology, how to turn the wind to our usefulness how to make ourselves managers of the wind. Partly we do not believe such as odd tale because we are not religious freaks. Partly we resist such a story because it surges beyond our categories. Partly we had imagined you to be more ordered and reliable than that. So we listen to part and return to our ordered existence. We depart with only a little curiosity, but not yielding. We return to how it was before, unconvinced but wistful, slightly praying for wind, craving for newness, wishing to have it all available to us. We pray toward the wind and wait, unconvinced but wistful. As the church we have been gifted the spirit of Jesus to help reconcile the world back to God. And I very specifically use that term, the spirit of Jesus. Too often when we learn about God being a trinity, we think God the Father, and over on one side is God the Son, and over on the other side is God the Holy Spirit. And there's kind of this um, you know, inverted V when we're understanding who is which part. So Jesus has his place as the Father's Son, and the Spirit has its place as kind of the action of the Father. But I think for me there was this dramatic shift when I kind of completed the circuit within the Trinity to say that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And even when we began this series through Acts chapter 2, I kind of wanted to convey that it's the continual work of Jesus no longer in the flesh, but enfleshed in his people because of his Spirit invested in them that we can read the book of Acts as a continuation on of the story of Luke. And so what we're celebrating today is that we have been gifted the spirit of Jesus has the placed within us to empower us to do the work that we're called to do. Our vision for this year is maturing in Christ for the sake of the world. And, and now we're beginning that turnover. We've been talking about maturity, first of all, by looking at Jesus as the template, as the fully human one. Secondly, as we are maturing into Jesus, to look more like Jesus, what are the practices that we participate 
participate in as the church. But then recognizing all of this maturing, it has a purpose. It has a, a focus, which is that we begin to partner with God in reconciling the world back to him. And so that's what we find here on this Pentecost Sunday in 2020. And the major shift that I had this week in thinking about what is Pentecost, what is this day in the church calendar, why is it so special, is that Pentecost is less about the disbursement of these cool magical powers that we get through the Holy Spirit. How, uh, that's how we often speak of Pentecost, that the Spirit came upon Peter and the apostles and the church, and they all began to speak in tongues. And then we speak about spiritual gifts, which is the series that we start next week. But it becomes about us and what we get out of the Holy Spirit. That all of a sudden we have these cool powers and we're able to do all these amazing things. And that's where it kind of ends, that Pentecost is about us just getting something from God. But I think what I, what I realized this week as I read through the story over and over and over again is that there's a far deeper reality here that the story of Pentecost is about calling religious people to repent from their idolatry and their pride so that they could get back on board with what God is doing in the world. Perhaps you're very familiar with the story of Pentecost. I want to tell it to you. Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, go and wait in this upper room. And after a period of time, I'm going to send my spirit upon you to lead you kind of into the next chapter. And so 10 days later, the disciples are gathered in this upper room on the feast of Pentecost, waiting and praying in expectation of whatever it is that God is going to do. And if you remember, we talked about at the beginning of this series that Pentecost was the festival of weeks, that it celebrates uh, the generosity of God in the harvest, but it also celebrates receiving the Torah from God, the, the direction of God of how to live um, a God-honoring life. And so these disciples are kind of huddled in this upper room waiting for whatever it is that God's about to do. And this wind blows through the, through the space and, and the Spirit of God alights upon them. It says like these little tongues of fire. And then they go out into Jerusalem, into these public spaces, and they begin to preach in all of these different languages. And these Jews that are gathered from all over the known world for this festival are absolutely amazed at what they hear because they hear these supposedly poorly educated Galileans speaking their languages, preaching this gospel. And some accuse them of, some begin to listen and others accuse them of being drunk. And then Peter stands up in the middle of this whole gathering now that they have everybody's attention. And he preaches what we consider to be the first sermon in the New Testament that comes after the ascension of Jesus and the, the breaking open of the Spirit of God upon his people. And it's important to recognize Peter, Peter's audience are not non-believers, but they're Jews. They're faithful Jews. They're Jews that have gathered together to celebrate the goodness of God in the provision of the harvest and in the provision of the Torah. And so what Peter does is he speaks to his audience. He begins to tell the Jews the story of God, a story that they're very familiar with. He quotes from the prophet Joel about the things that God promised he was going to do in pouring out his spirit on men and women alike. He references David, you know, one of the fathers of the faith, and saying, even David recognize that there was another Lord even above him. 
And at the end of this powerful sermon, Peter calls these religious people, these people that already believe in God, into repentance. And Peter's challenge to them is, do you see God in your midst? Do you recognize that Jesus, the man that you had crucified because you wanted to prop up the status quo because the way things are working is good enough for you, do you realize that that was God incarnate? And do you realize even now that it's the same spirit, the spirit of Jesus working through his people that's calling you home, challenging you to rethink the way that you believe the world works and to come back to what God is doing right now. So what is Pentecost? What we read in the story of Pentecost is that God starts by saving his own people. Think about that. God begins the story of the church by saving his own people. And I believe that today, as in any other point in history, we need him to do the same. When you and I, when we are granted the Spirit, it is the Spirit that leads us to repent of our idolatry and our pride. You know, there are two stories in the Old Testament that kind of get a nod in Luke's telling of the the Pentecost story. The first is in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Perhaps you're familiar with this story of growing up. It's called the Tower of Babel. And in this story, mankind, as they continue to move east from Edom, which is to say they continue to move away from the good graces of God and and intimacy with Him, they find themselves in a land called Shinar, um, which is to say that is the land of Babylon, which becomes symbolic in the church or in, in the scriptures of saying you can't get any farther than the grace of God than being in Babylon, than being in exile. And so the people that are in Shinar in Babylon, they gather together and they say, well, how about we're going to build this tower that's going to go from the earth to the heaven. It's going to bridge earth and heaven. And that's going to be our way to, to build ourselves up so that we find ourselves equal to God. And God recognizes what they're doing. And in their common language, they're being able to scheme against him to kind of usurp God as being central to creation. And he causes confusion. That word Babel, this is where we get it from. It's a Hebrew word that means confusion. That now everybody speaks in all these different languages. So they couldn't conspire against God. And it's significant to note that in the story of Pentecost, the people of God go out into the confusion of a multitude of languages, but they speak a multitude of languages the same story, that through the multiplicity, God calls everybody back in repentance to that central story that's about Jesus. And so the Spirit of God uses diversity as a way to bring unity through the common story And so in Pentecost, we see the undoing of the story of Babel, that because of mankind's pride, they are led into confusion and competition. 
The second story may not be one that you are as familiar with, but I think we see the echoes of it as well in the story of Pentecost. This is from Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be reading verses 25 to 29. And so in this story, Moses, on behalf of the people, goes up onto Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments. He receives the Torah from Yahweh. And this is God's way of saying, here's the way I want you to live in order to rehabilitate you from being an enslaved people that have been made identityless, but not only to rehabilitate you, but to also prepare you for the job I have for you to do, which is to be my priests, my ambassadors, to call all people back to me. And so Moses receives the Torah and he comes down off the mountain after 40 days, but what does he find? That the people had come to his brother Aaron and they had become impatient. And they said, make us a God. Give us something with a shape that we, can, that we can worship, that we can see it and we can understand it. And in some ways we can control our interactions with it because whoever that God is up on the mountain is a little bit too much for us. And so Aaron had gathered together all of their gold. He melted it down and he made it into this symbol, this golden calf. And in the Old Testament, a calf was actually a symbol for Yahweh himself. So it's not that they were worshiping a different God. They were worshiping Yahweh, just the, the, the retail version of Yahweh. The, the small version of Yahweh that was quite literally made out of their stuff, the things that they valued. Are we preaching yet? That how often do we take a vision of God revealed in Jesus, a version of it, but we reduce it down and we mix it in with our stuff, the things that we value, and we set it on a pedestal and we begin to worship that vision of God because it suits our agendas and our fancy. And so, of course, Moses is furious and he calls out that anybody who is faithful to Yahweh needs to come immediately. And so the Levites, one of the tribes, they run over and he says, God told me this, that you're to take a sword and you're to run through the camp and just slaughter as many people as you can. Men, women, children, family members, whomever it is, because we need to draw a line in the sand that this kind of idolatry is not okay. And this is what we find in Exodus 32, verses 25 to 29. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. This is a very very uncomfortable portion of scripture. And it should be. It's hard to make sense of exactly what is going on here. But what we see is that kind of mixed up in God giving the Torah was also the disobedience of Israel to turn away from the true God and to commodify the idea of God to suit their own fancy to participate in a form of idolatry that's not different gods. It's just the more marketable version of the same God. 
And I think it's amazing what we see in the story of Pentecost at the very end after Peter preaches this sermon and calls Israel to repentance. It says, and about 3,000 were added to that day. And I think Luke knew what he was doing. Is that he's saying, in this story of Pentecost, God is undoing what happened at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is healing us of our idolatry, our hard-heartedness, our disobedience, by granting us His Holy Spirit. That where we once relied on the law, now we have the Spirit of God to guide us, to shape us, to form us, to give us an identity, yes, but to also give us a purpose. And so what does life led by the Spirit look like? When I was a boy, we were uh, serving at a church in Michigan that had uh, this mission statement from Scripture. This was kind of our central Scripture, and I memorized it when I was a little kid, and it was kind of rattling around in my head as I was preparing for Pentecost. And this is Paul writing uh, to his spiritual son, Timothy, who's young and impressionable, and a lot of people didn't hold him necessarily in high regard for the position that he was to, to hold. And Paul says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. What a beautiful phrase to speak about. What does it look like to be led by the Spirit of God? What does life look like? Number one, it does not look like timidity or fear. We do not shirk back from God or from the way the world is if we are invested with the Spirit and we're sensitive to Him. But not only that, we are through the Spirit, we are given power and love and self-discipline. Today on Pentecost, what we celebrate is that we have been given a spirit of advocacy, not accusation, and unity, not uniformity. What does this beautiful combination of power and love and self-discipline cultivate in us? I think what the Spirit does is it begins to teach us to think like Jesus first, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means as Spirit-invested Christians, Spirit-led Christians, we are the ones who are careful thinkers, not reductionist regurgitators. That not only do we behave like Jesus behaves, but we begin to think like him. We begin to feel like him. And the more that we give up control and allow the spirit to work within us, the more naturally we begin to radiate the presence of Jesus wherever we go. And again, that combination, power, love, and self-discipline. Power looks different for those of us in the kingdom. Because in the empires of the world, power is about control and it's about suppression and it's about maintaining systems that work for those at the top while making those who work at the bottom uh, enslaved to certain ways of being in the world. But for us in the kingdom, power looks different. We do not seek to have power over people, but power alongside. Because love, the love that is revealed on the cross in Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, becomes the engine and the goal for the power that we have been granted in the Spirit. It's a sacrificial power. It's the power to lay down our lives. 
It's the power to become nothing as Jesus became nothing. To have victory over the powers and the principalities and to advance the kingdom through our self-sacrifice, through our smallness, through our nothingness. It's to abdicate the power as the way the world defines it and to take up the new form of power that we see in the kingdom. I know y'all have been uh, hungering for some N.T. Wright quotes and I apologize that I haven't given you one in probably three weeks. But this is what N.T. Wright had to say about power. When God wants to take his power and reign, putting the world to rights as he has always promised, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. They will do in humility and hope the world renewing tasks, the tasks through which the living God is implementing his way of being king. And how does God do that? By investing those kinds of people with his Holy Spirit to demonstrate a new kind of power, to give a right understanding of love that comes through self-discipline, itself, ironically, a gift of the Holy Spirit to show there's another way. There is a new world being birthed in the midst of the old one as God rescues and redeems his creation piece by piece. Look around at the crazy right now in the world. Whether you're scanning social media or you're reading or listening to the news, we are in unprecedented times. And one of the things that has been so important for me to remember in this pandemic, when, when I have to lament that I cannot gather with my brothers and sisters to sing about the goodness of God, where I can't read the word in public with other people there to witness to the goodness of God's story, where we can't participate in Holy Communion, where we can't lay hands on one another and pray for each other, is that right now we are in exile. We're in Babylon. We're in Shinar. This is not the promised land. Look around at the crazy. And you need to recognize in five minutes that this is not the world the way that God designs, has designed it to be. This week, we witnessed yet another murder by police in Minneapolis. A sweet brother called George Floyd. Another man whose final words are, I can't breathe. This is not the promised land. This is Babylon. That is not the power that we see demonstrated by Jesus. That is the power of empire. All through this struggle of figuring out how do we maneuver ourselves through the time of coronavirus, through isolation, through these public policies of what we should open and when and how we should lock down. 
I watched as extremes, granted these are extremes because I do believe that very often the media is only highlighting the extremes of either end of the political spectrum because they are more newsworthy, but to see people who call themselves pro-life standing up for their own rights to go out and do what they want to do, and then people who call themselves pro-choice ridiculing the people for being pro-life for being hypocritical. And all I could think when I saw these extremes is we're all morally bankrupt. That so much of the failure of these camps, again, these, these extremes and these camps of, of a pro-life movement and a pro-choice movement, there's hypocrisy among all of them. I think about Mercutio in Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet standing at the center between this battle between the Montagues and Capulets and saying, a plague on both of your houses. The important conversation that needs to be had about how does God value life and how does God value the tremendous importance of personal responsibility has been taken by the powers and the principalities and it's been marketed so that we cannot have conversations with one another. That we no longer appeal to the spirit of Jesus to guide us in power and love and self-discipline, but rather we retreat into our, our tribal circles and lob accusations at the other side. I want to be, as a Christian, and I believe we are called to be, vehemently pro-life. But that is life at every stage. That we need a vision of God, we need a vision that is led by the Spirit of God to be able to genuinely look at people first through the eyes of Jesus without appealing to all of our partisan divides and all of these systems and all of these theories and philosophies that have been, that have been erected by the powers and the principalities to confuse us. Just look around at the crazy don't you have this sinking feeling within you that it's all tricksy? It's all false. Doesn't it feel like the old gods are still alive and well and that they're running the world? Does it make you want to throw up your hands in disgust and to walk away from all of it? Well, friends, today on Pentecost, I give you news. There is good news that we have been given the spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that God has established his church as this alternative society right there in the midst of the old one. That the powers and the principalities are trying their best to take pieces of the alternative society of God and to commodify and to convince us to go over and be on their side, to take up their philosophies, to take up their boundaries. But the Spirit of God continues to lead us through the midst of all of that. That the church becomes this place of purging us of our prejudices. The church becomes this place where the Spirit of God is purging us from our old worldviews of how we're supposed to value other people, of how we're supposed to value life. The church becomes the place where the Spirit of God is purging His people from their ego, where we make decisions about what's best for me, and how do I get my slice of the pie? 
And how does the Spirit of God do that through everything we've been talking about in this series? Through the apostles' teaching, being gathered around the story of God. Through the fellowship, the strengthening and encouragement and challenge of those in the church who are along with us for the journey. Through the table that keeps the central image of our faith in the, in the center of our understanding of what God is really like. Through prayer, where we continue to stand in the gap between heaven and earth, interceding until we see heaven come to earth. Through radical generosity, where we believe that every good thing we have has been given to us by God to steward in the here and now to advance his kingdom. And through worship, where we sing over one another the truths of God, holding in tension the truth of who God is and the reality of our experience right now so that praise and lament have a direction. They have a trajectory. In all of these things, teaching, fellowship, table, prayer, generosity, worship, we are being reformed. We are being renewed. We are working out our salvation with fear and trembling and yet with boldness and confidence. There's this modern phenomenon within the church, which it allows people to say things like, Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. Or to believe, well, my faith is a private thing. It's just between me and Jesus. And it's a heresy that needs to be rooted out because we no longer have the luxury of pretending that we have a private gospel. Because the reduction to a private gospel has rendered us inert to bear witness to the good news that actually saves the world because we have let the powers and the principalities whittle away our power, the power that is freely offered to us by the Spirit of God. And so what does that look like in action? We do what we do because it's the heart of God, not because it abounds to a man-made system. If we do what we do simply because we've bought into a system, we've bought into a political party, we've bought into a way of seeing the world that is not first and foremost kingdom-centered, then we have missed the mark. And we believe this in theory until somebody says something that triggers that little thing in, in us that says, oh, they're for us and not against us. They're in that team, not in my team. And that's when we begin to recognize where it is that we hold idolatries because we quickly begin to divide people apart again based on these labels that have been handed to us by the powers and the principalities to keep us powerless. Can we believe in science because we are Christians. And when, because when we look at the way, the ordered creation, we see the face of God. Can we as Christians proclaim that all life is precious while also seeing God's special affection for oppressed people? And that sometimes we need to be specific when we talk about which people matter and why. Can we commit ourselves to pursuing and revealing truth above seeking our own comfort, 
above reassuring ourselves that we're on the right side of history. Because turning a blind eye to the pain of the world in need is a sign of privilege, and it's not the way of Jesus. To pretend like we're already on the right side of history because we have the Spirit and we're just fine and and we don't have any idols in our lives is to ignore one of the central elements of the story of Pentecost, that God begins saving the world through saving his people and calling us to repent and to get back on board with the thing that he's doing in the world now because it is God's desire to draw all to himself, that no one should be lost church, brothers, sisters, friends, we have work to do. But it has to begin by us repenting, of coming back to God, of laying down our idols and our pride, our small ways of seeing the world that have caused us to write off whole people groups as statistics that cause us to jump to find the right rhetorical argument that, that, so we no longer have to face the horror of the way the world is. Because perhaps it's seeing the world through the eyes of God that becomes the thing that stirs us to action. That no one, not one, should be lost. I want to finish today by reading the words of Peter's first evangelistic sermon from Acts chapter 2 but I've taken the liberty of editing his sermon to make it a little bit more applicable to us in 2020. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Christians, and all of you who live in America, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Christians, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see the decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Christians, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all America be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When Christians heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Father, we stand here in, in Pentecost 2020. We want to repent for the places of idolatry in our lives where we have marketed you, we've reduced you, we've tamed you. We've mixed you in with our stuff and we've set you on a pedestal because that way you're more manageable and controllable. God, we confess that we have tried to commodify your Holy Spirit to make it simply about receiving some cool magic tricks rather than allowing ourselves to be transformed from the inside out so that we look more like Jesus as we go about the work that you've given us to do. Heavenly Father, we repent of our sins of trying to maintain the status quo, of falling prey to an empirical notion of power when you've given us a dramatically new vision of power through the Spirit of Jesus. And I ask that you send that Spirit now to fall afresh on your people, your beloved, your devoted, that we put, might put behind us the old ways, the old worldviews, the, the ways of the principalities and powers, that we might turn to you and further invest ourselves, root ourselves, anchor ourselves to your kingdom realities. Guide us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.